And I remember I was in a taxi. It was the night before I was supposed to leave. It was Ramadan. It's like the last 10 days or something. It was like, I don't know, three in the morning. And at that time there was a huge problem with gas shortages. And so they had a lot of taxi drivers convert to propane tanks, like themselves, you know, to, to operate on, on gas and propane. So this taxi had this giant propane tank in the back trunk, huge, you know. And so we were driving all of a sudden in front of us, we see something going on. I saw someone on the one side of the street pull out two people, pull out rifles, you know, AKs, and the people on the other side, they were shooting at each other in the seat, in the main street, you know, like, and so we, I told the guy, you know, let's go reverse out of here, get the hell out of here. He looked at me, he's like, the, the reverse doesn't work in the car, so we have to push it. And then, like, I realized, oh my God, like, there's a giant, there's a propane tank. If it gets hit with a bullet, the whole car explodes. You know, I would just leave the car and run away, but all my coffees are samples are in there. So we're like, we're pushing, pushing. And I remember like, you know, in the cartoons you hear like, you know, when they, when they shoot guns, like they go zing, zing, like those things. I remember hearing them past my ears, you know, and I was laughing because I can hear them, you know, but later on I was processing, other process would happen to me. You kind of feel, you don't know how vulnerable you are or you think you're invincible until you get this rude awakening one day. So today we're talking about a very, very precious commodity. It's certainly the most precious commodity in my kitchen, and that would be coffee. It's a commodity that brings us all together, and it certainly brought us closer together to this story. It's a story about an individual who so strongly believes in bringing the coffee of his people to the world at a very, very difficult time. So sit down, relax, grab a cup of coffee, whichever way you drink it, while we start. I'm Razan Alzayani. And I'm Hibba Fisher, and you're listening to Kerning Cultures, a podcast dissecting the complex narratives of the Middle East through stories. And one story that always kind of captures my imagination. The streets lost culture. <laughs> and you're listening to Kerning Cultures. My name is Mukhtar Al Khanchali. I'm the founder and CEO of Port of Mocha Coffee. I met Mukhtar in Oakland, California. I basically followed him around for an entire day visiting coffee shops and roasteries, drinking really good coffee, and I recorded him in his car as he drove through the city. And where, where were you born? I was born June 4th, 1988 in Liverpool, England. Mukhtar's parents, both Yemeni, left their home country of Yemen when the nation split over a socialist movement. After a brief time in England and New York, the family finally resettled in California in the United States. We came to California in, in 1998, and I grew up here. We moved to the Tenderloin neighborhood in SF. It's very, it's very gritty neighborhood. I think one of the, Dave Chappelle's comedian, he said, ain't nothing tender about that place. It was rough. We lived there in a one-bedroom apartment, nine of us. And then in... 2003, when I was after I graduated from middle school, my family wanted me to live, to experience Yemen the way they did. So I moved to Yemen with my family. In all your life, you're, you you don't feel at home here in America, and then even back home now in my family, and you get there and you realize, oh, I don't really fit in here either, you know. And eventually, I, I was able to overcome those language barriers and cultural barriers and. You acclimate, you become, you know, you live there, and it was the best thing that happened to me. 
So we had a giant house in Yemen. Like my grandfather built this dream house for his kids and grandkids. And it's like 14 rooms in every floor. It's on a hill and it overlooks this beautiful valley. And, you know, we oftentimes would joke if, a, if someone tried to come and rob our house, it would be lost. And there was two giant plots of land around it. And they grew corn and wheat. We had guava trees and apple trees and at least 60 coffee trees. That was the first interaction with coffee trees. And I would pick cherries with my grandmother and dry them with her. And so she would tell me, you know, pick the ripe red cherries. And then she would pick them and we would put them on these big old pots and put them out so for the sun to, to dry them. You don't do it manually. You actually take it to a mill and they have these machines, these rice hullers. They have to hull the coffee and break the beans out. And they roast it for you and then they grind it and they put spices in it. They put spices? Yeah, we put, we put a lot of cardamom and ginger and saffron and sugar. And so when I had coffee from Yemen with my grandmother, it tasted completely different than coffee. I, to be honest, I didn't know that. So here's the funny part. Years later, I got to coffee. I'm watching the documentary, and I'm, you know, about co- and my mom, my grandma's like, "Oh, they're doing it wrong." I'm like, "Well, how do you know? How do?" You-? It's like we have 60 trees in our house, and it, yeah, dummy, or yeah, stupid. Then I realized, oh, bun, bun, coffee bean, kahwa, kahwa is coffee. Like I didn't realize it because I just saw like this tree, and we, just, I never, and then it tasted different because we put spices in it. So you never knew that the trees outside of your house were coffee, coffee. trees. I just thought they were bun. It's a weird thing we have called bun. This was, you were 12, so how long did you live in Yemen for? A year, a little over a year. And then I decided, you know, I have to go to high school. I want to go back to school and come to the States. You can imagine coming back and now it's like, it's post 9-11 and, you know, I'm trying, trying to fit in. Mokhtar became Mo, more money, more problems. I started reading this interesting, a lot of great books. The Bluest Eyes by Toni Morrison, Wiley Cage Bird Sings by Manja Angelou, and then Mo became Mokhtar. And then went to community college. Something triggered in my mind. I was like a younger kid. I thought about coffee in Yemen and doing something with that. And so I had dropped out that one semester. I had gotten so into coffee. I be- it consumed my time. I said like I started doing going to coffee shops and taking classes and you know just trying to learn what I could anywhere I can. I had spent months researching the supply chain from what I could from here. I had done SWOT diagrams, mapped these things out, and then I'm like, okay, now I have to go to Yemen and actually go to these places and figure things out. What years? 2013, actually, in 13. I ended up going to 32 different regions in Yemen that grew coffee. Thousand-year-old villages, literally, and you're there. And the people have lived in the same way for generations. Just for a moment, time stops. And that's what I loved most about being there. My first coffee farm visit, I went down there. The Ruwad Cooperative, and this one village in Hayman, the district of Sana'a. About two and a half hours from the capital. And this was not in the season either, so the coffee trees are not like really blooming. And I went down, and I'm looking at the coffee tree, and I'm like trying to pretend to know what I'm talking, what I'm doing. I, I, at that time, I was still learning. And Majid, one of the cooperative leaders, comes, and he's like, I'm sorry, but the coffee trees are actually over there. He points to all these other trees. And so whatever I was looking at was not a coffee tree. And so I looked at him, and my inner city smart, street smart skills came in. Like, oh, Majid, I know that, but these trees are in close proximity to the coffee trees, and they affect its health. I learned very quickly to be quiet and I can learn as much as I can early. Coffee is very different based on the varietal and how it's grown. And can you explain what a, varietal, so what a varietal is? We have, we have different varietals, Gesha and Tipica and Bourbon and Katoy. Uh, and so some varietals have like a high acidity, very, you know, some have high floral notes, some have very chocolate, very thick bodies. In Yemen, there's all these varietals that grow there that nowhere else in the world has. You know, it's amazing it's the amount of diversity in genetics there. Our coffees are grown in these high, high altitudes. 
and the higher coffee is grown, the slower it matures. And so it develops more sugars and more acids. And then we don't have much rain, so our trees are always stressed out. And in grapes, people know that wine, grapes that are stressed have sweeter wines. So our trees produce really wonderful coffees. Some places I went, there were like no coffee at all. They're like, yeah, we had coffee like 50 years ago, 100 years ago. As Mukhtar told us, while the coffee bean was first found in Ethiopia, the art of cultivating and brewing coffee as a beverage started in Yemen. It was Sufi monks who would brew coffee and drink it so that they could stay up late into the night for their meditation and prayers. Coffee actually means wine, Arabic. Khamr. It what? Means, yeah, coffee is the Arabic word. Qahwa. Al-khamr al-nashwa. The invigorating wine that raises you to a state of ecstasy. And then... The what kind of wine? Invigorating wine that raises you to a state of ecstasy. Al-khamr al-ladhi yuthiru nashwa And uh, that's why they, in, the, in the first century it was banned in most Muslim countries. They thought it was wine. Coffee drinking, brewing, and its cultivation, it's spread from the mystical depths of the Sufi monasteries in Yemen to the rest of the Islamic world. Coffee houses became a new space where people gathered to listen to intellectuals and poets and share ideas. But due to its reputation as this mild stimulant that was comparable to hashish and wine, coffee was this commodity that was confusing clerics and rulers as to whether or not it should be banned. As Mukhtar immersed himself in coffee's rich history and its growing methods, he went from region to region, visiting coffee plantations in Yemen. Yeah, it was wonderful going to these places and, and like, I mean, look at this. These are some of the highest grown coffee in the world. This is 2,500 meters above sea level. You have to hike up these places. And the beautiful land, the landscapes are places my family had never, never been to these places before. After three months, I think, I showed my grandfather my pictures. Because I just leave in the mornings, come back at night, and sometimes I go for a couple of days. And I showed him. He's like, oh my God, you in all these places? Like, wh- where is this place? Like, he never had seen these places before. Why aren't you taking me with you? <laughs> Tribesmen are very hospitable when you go there. There were villages where I would go and they would, bring, they would go in the line and they would get one person for every household. And they would do a lottery system to see who gets to host me. You know, I remember one time we went to one farmer's house. It was a big room. And he has like, he had 13 kids. And this was their living room, their bedroom, their kitchen. Um, and then it, it's not taboo to ask personal questions, you know, intimate questions. So one of my friends asked them like, so how do you have relations with your wife? You know, if you're so, he's like, oh, I, I go under one of the coffee trees. And we looked at him and we just started laughing out loud. And he looked at us like, what? He said, listen, son, you have not lived until you've made love to a woman under a coffee tree. Were they selling coffee already? So all of these coffee farmers, where were they? Who were they selling to? To the local collectors who sold to the beer collectors and beer collectors. And then the local collectors were loan sharks. So they would give loans ahead of harvest for low price points in the harvest. And there were cycles of debt that happened for generations. I saw there was a need. They, they needed so much help and they needed access to a better market. The current system was not helping them. And I thought maybe coffee could be a thing where I can bring it from Yemen to the San Francisco coffee culture scene. And how it was going to happen, I had no exact idea yet. As Mukhtar continued his coffee research, a national conflict began to escalate in the background. A northern Yemeni movement called the Houthis had been rebelling against the national government since 2004, eager to take advantage of the general political instability in the country as a result of issues like al-Qaeda attacks, unemployment, and corruption. But the political instability of the time didn't phase Mukhtar. And Yemen was going through a difficult transitional 
period. There was this militia taking over different cities. There was instability and chaos. And the government was so weak, they couldn't even con contain these areas anymore. And the people around me, they were like, it's normal. You know, you know, they were just, that's how life was for them. Finally, after, I mean, three and a half, four months of doing this study, I could have enough coffee samples to bring back and, and taste them here. Every time I would go somewhere, I'd bring a stack of coffee with me, a sample from the one area. And you know, I was like a little part of the room. Eventually I filled up all the room. Like this one room was full of coffee bags in different areas. And I remember when I came back, I had six luggage bags full of coffee. Six luggage bags, 23 kilos each? Mm-hmm. I went to seven security screenings in Philadelphia. What did you tell the TSA officers as you were- I work in Yemen, I work with coffee farmers. When they hear Yemen, they get just like tightened up because they, they've been trained about dealing with anything, especially Yemen. But then I started talking about coffee. And like what it is, and they started asking me for advice, and I give them, okay, this is how you, you know, it was great. Every single station I went. And then, so I made it, brought the samples to Willem. Willem was Mukhtar's mentor, who was doing coffee work in Yemen with the U.S. governmental aid organization. We cupped them in the lab. We have this thing called coffee cupping, or sensory analyzing coffee. It's a specific way to test coffee and see what the quality of it is. Mukhtar demonstrated to me this process of cupping coffee as a way of evaluating its quality at a roastery in Oakland, California. This is called a cup-in. 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 Cup <laughs> oh yeah, you make a weird sound. You make me laugh now. You go around and you slurp it very aggressively. Vaporize around your mouth. Uh, the more your mother would disapprove, the better. And then you go and it's a, it's a blind tasting, so you don't know what number is. It just has these letters usually in numbers. And you go and you go around and you, and you slurp it and you have these categories of flavor and taste. Fragrance, aroma, flavor, aftertaste, acidity, mouthfeel, balance. Each one is out of 10 points, increments of 0.25. So 7, 7, 0.25, 7, 50, It's a language you learn, so you can tell what's good and what's bad coffee. And some of them go overboard, they do. And one girl was like, this tastes like pink Starburst. And then one guy totally lost me. He said, this coffee is too passive aggressive for me. <laughs> Interesting. Cinnamon, this one. Are you spitting it out? Yeah, I do. Because you, you don't want to drink that much coffee. So now back to the moment when Mukhtar comes home after his first research trip in Yemen, bags of coffee in tow. You know, and then so I made it, brought the samples to Willem. We cupped them in the lab. And, you know, um, it's out of 100 points. Anything above 80 points is considered specialty coffee. And 85 plus is really amazing, hard, hard to get. And 96, extremely rare. So from the 21, 19 to m failed to meet basic specialty standards. I mean, there weren't even 80 points. Like, I know Willem called some of them DOA, death on arrival. And then there were two that were 90 plus. He was, you know, I was like really happy about that. Cause I'm like, okay, I we can actually do something here. Where and where were those two from? From these two regions, one in Ib and one in Haima. And I went back and got more more coffee samples, sent them over, and they were horrible. And they were from the same farmers. So I realized the way it was picked and processed, all these there was no protocol, there was no system in place. And so the result was always, always be random. And it became a social intervention and, and a quality intervention. And that meant working from even way before the harvest, throughout the whole year, building drying bed systems, giving them moisture analyzer tools. All these problems were happening, you know, along the valley chain, so I, I had to control all that. Mukhtar also realized that in addition to accounting for the quality of how coffee was grown, there was also the issue of qat. Totally different lifestyle there. This is was. Are you chewing qat? Yes, I was. <laughs> um, this is a qat session here. So after lunch, the whole country relaxes, men separate than women, and they just chew this thing, and it's a mild stimulant, and then they talk about life 
philosophy, politics, religion, you know, whatever it is. And so talk to me, talk to me about the tradition of Qatz, because it's not it's not like crack cocaine or heroin. Like it's it's a really mild, it's mild drug. stimulant. It's probably less stronger than coffee, I would say. Nothing else for them to do. For every one coffee farm, there are seven class farms. And they used to be the opposite 50 years ago. So I was like, okay, if I can get coffee to a certain level, I can find buyers who pay more, and I can substitute Qatz for coffee. So what, why does it matter to divert production away from Qatz to mm. coffee? A couple of, one, for one reason, you can't export it. It takes up 35% of Yemen's water resources, at least. Why can't you export Qatz? Because no one, it's legal in most countries. Because Qatz is such a drain on the natural resources of the country, and because of the fact that it's illegal to import to most countries, Mukhtar felt strongly about encouraging farmers to grow coffee instead. And so there's, you have to have an alternative substitute. You can't just get rid of this thing because millions of people rely on in Yemen for livelihoods. So what I would do was I would use these as my platform to speak, and I would go into the Qat session, wait about 30 minutes, there's a drug I think called Katadine in the Qat, and I would wait for it to hit the bloodstream. And people would be really, you know, they would listen to you more attentively. And then I had this, like, Braveheart speech I rehearsed. I had to like, practice. And so I would tell them the history of coffee, the legacy, how it changed the world, and around the world, all these different things that when coffee entered Europe, the, the American, French, Russian revolutions have happened, and coffee houses changed the world, you know? And then I'd bring them back to the reality, like, you know, look at you right now, no one cares about you. These NGOs take advantage of you. This government has no roads for you. Like, there's an ayah in the Quran, it says, That indeed God will not change the condition of a people unless they change themselves. So I let them finish that, the verse at the end, and you know, I would tell them, listen, I'm willing to give you guys the latest technology and newest protocols, and I'll pay the highest price in the world for coffee if you guys will change. The result was, their coffee was amazing. It was really amazing. So I didn't know how good it was yet. And I was we were doing this work, you know, for about a year get the coffee to that level. In the year that Mukhtar was working in Yemen, politics in the country began to shift ever so drastically. In September of 2014, the Houthis entered Sana'a, the capital. In January 2015, they surrounded the presidential palace and placed the president and his cabinet under house arrest. By March of 2015, the Houthis were attempting to take over the entire country. When the Houthi rebels started, I mean, how, what, why did you stay when you could have so easily left earlier, as soon as it happened? I mean, the Houthis have been there. This, that issue has been going since I first came to Yemen. They were, they were taking over. They took over the capital. I was in Sana'a. They run, the president ran away. I was in Sana'a. All these things happened. And I was like, you know, I, was like, I just kind of felt like, you know, I was on this. I really wanted this, um, this part to be successful and I can just be a little more patient. It'll be, it'll, you know, and, I, and nothing happened to me physically yet. But there was a coffee conference that was going to do a special marketing event for Yemen in it. It's hosted by the Specialty Coffee Association of America in Seattle. And two days before I was supposed to leave, and I remember I woke up and I thought it was a wedding next nearby at first. But there were anti-aircraft machine guns. The war began and there were airstrikes and they bombed both airports. They tried both ports so we couldn't leave. Uh, we tried contacting the State Department. Their official response was, we can't help you, but we can relay your message to your loved ones via our website. Other countries were, were, were evacuating citizens out, like China and Russia, India and Pakistan, and the US and Britain weren't. Uh, we tried and we, there was no, they wouldn't help us. It, it's, it was like a scary, um, it was a scary realization not to know if you were gonna live, see in the morning. I remember being afraid of that. It was the first time I, I really felt afraid. 
And so in the morning, I was okay, I gotta, I, you know, I have to leave. Next day, I went to Pomoka, seven hour drive. It's a small little port, no one uses it anymore. It's mostly for um, small shipments. It was the first port in the world to commercialize coffee. And that's where the name Mocha comes from, coffee. So I went there, and we were supposed to take a, a ship, a small ship with like 100 passengers from Somalia. The ship wasn't working, there was no diesel, there was airstrikes, and said we have, instead of a three day journey across the Red Sea, you can take a smaller f- ship. It's like a boat, it's like, it's, it's called a Viper, and it's one day only, it's trip to trip to, to cross. So I'm like, all right, in my mind, I'm like a Viper, I mean, like a Dodge Viper, like a fast thing, you know, and he meant fiber, like fiberglass. So we get there, and it was like this little boat dinghy. You know, no one leaves land, go on the ocean, unless they have no other choice. And I remember the first thing I asked the guy when he was taking me, I was like, I want my coffee samples. So he gave me my bag that I had, this, like, the Samsung, I had the Samsonite bag with coffee samples in it. I still remember, you know, texting my brother and telling him, tell my mom and dad I love them before I left on the boat. And it wasn't until I was in the ocean I realized on this little boat, giant waves and you realize like how small you are I was numb the whole thing but it was cold and wet mist water always running around you like the iPhone I had Drake I listened to his album it's funny because there's, there's a song that album was called Now and Forever and there's a line that says okay it goes I'm going I'm going I'm gone I don't want to sleep on the floor anymore what I did in Yemen I don't want to miss my boat I'm driving this into this thing I'm afraid I'm gonna die I forget where I'm going if I die I'm a legend all these like, interesting lines and I'm like Drinking coffee and chewing coffee is a bad mix. You know, you're in this giant ocean, it's like these waves crashing on you, and you, this guy has no like GPS, you know, he knows where he's going, you know, and he has one single motor engine, if it dies, you're done. You're stuck, you know, you don't, you don't have any food. Um, and so I didn't think of anything, I just thought about like my mother and my father. And seeing them. And then, then I we we made it eventually to Djibouti, across the Red Sea. And they thought I was a smuggler, spent the night in jail, or they said it was the governor's house. My friends in these different legal organizations had organized like press conference. So when I got to SF, the airport, there was a giant press conference there. You know, I was like shocked. I didn't know they were going to be there. I made it. I made. I literally like. I made it. I made. I landed. The next day, I stayed for one day. And the next day, I made it to Seattle. Like I remember, like driving from the uber on my uber to the conference and i hear myself on bbc radio and the uber driver was hearing my story and hearing me he was like man this guy's amazing what he's doing these farmers but he's crazy i told the uber driver yeah he's nuts i had the coffee roasted for the event got to the conference and it was the most well-attended coffee tasting in the history of that conference i had heard my story on all of the news too so when i got there it was so important that i wanted the coffee to win objectively without any like not not for the story not before the, the the work of these these farmers and all it was like six different tables in the same set and each table was the best cup every table it had a really explosive taste to it right away right away before you even sip you can smell like the fruitiness uh, notes on it papaya mango and it was amazing strawberries you know it was great it was great coffee there was a french guy called it my coffee celestial <laughs> i don't know what that means but uh all these buyers were there and it was like i mean the price point people were giving me was great and then what were what were some of the price points the highest that people ever paid for coffee to give you an idea of what some of those price points looked like blue bottle the specialty coffee shop in the united states sells mohtar's coffee port of mocha coffee for 16 dollars a cup of black coffee 
And so now you had a market. Now you had yeah, demand. Uh, and so coffee supply. So now you had to ship it from Yemen. Yeah, and like, can you do that in the middle of a war? And like, no one knows you. I just, you know, processed it. We had, we bought a generator. We continued milling the coffees and the machines. We can. They had the workers. These women were only ninety-one percent of my employees. Employees are women in Yemen. They would work in the daytime and at night. They'd go home and hide from the airstrikes. They were such resilient, powerful, amazing people. Just yesterday morning, I'm talking to Nuruddin. He's our operations manager in Sana'a. In the middle of a conversation, we had a wonderful conversation. In the middle of it, I just hear him saying, Saruch. Saruch. Rockets. And the phone dies. And then, like, I tried to reach out to him. His phone wasn't working for 23 minutes. Finally, he answered and told me that a rocket hit, like, not that far from them, but his phone had just, like, decided to die then. You have, like, so much to deal with. Port of Mocha Coffee has been unequivocally ranked as some of the highest quality coffee in the world by certified coffee experts. And it's because of that that Port of Mocha charges $16 a cup of coffee. But it's also the daily hardships that Mukhtar and his team have to deal with on the ground in Yemen during the war to get the coffee out of the country and to the rest of the world. But when the coffee reaches its final destinations, it does so well on the ground in coffee shops. With Blue Bottle sold out within less than two months, our next shipment, it's going to be here in like less than two weeks now, and it's going to Slate in Seattle, Kotum in France, in Switzerland, in Asia, there in Tokyo. It's going to Dragonfly in Colorado, going to George Howell Coffees in Boston. Some of the best coffee shops in the world. There was one guy in the Rockefeller Center in, in Manhattan. He walked in, he's like, $6 for a cup of coffee, I'll try it. And they're like, no, sorry, it's 16 He's like, that is outrageous, it's ridiculous. But I want to support this country. I was going through, I'll buy it. And then he buys it. And I find out he came back later that day and he like apologized. This was the best coffee I ever had. And every Friday he takes his top employees. He has all this big hedge fund and gives them the coffee as a bonus for them. I, my goal is to impact this country in Yemen with what I believe you can do with coffee. You can actually like change the economy of a country through coffee. And to impact people here with hearing or learning about, about Yemen, about Arabs, about Muslims in a very positive way. And this coffee is just this great medium. You know, no one, no one cares about politics, but they love coffee, so it's a way for them to, to learn about us in a nicer way. This episode was produced by Hiba Fisher and Persia Verlin. Editorial support by me, Razan Alziani. Thank you to Samira Pakmir for transcribing this epic interview. Sound design by Mohamed Khrizat. And a special shout out to Mukhtar Al Khanshali for sharing his story with us and Red Bay Coffee in Oakland, California for letting us record in the roastery and turning all their music and fans off. As always, if you like what you've heard today, please do rate us on iTunes. It will help boost our rankings and let other people know about who we are. Thank you. Until next time.